Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 339 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW and NXT as both brands, along with WWE, are headed into a major weekend in less than 10 days. We're getting WWE Clash at the Castle, NXT Worlds Collide, and AEW All Out. All of it inside about a 28-hour period of time. But folks, this is going to be a loaded week of professional wrestling with all brands, all three of those, trying to get their stuff in before the NFL season begins, which means they are putting a lot of work on the shoulders of us here at the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. As far as what our schedule is going to look like next week, we will divulge that to you on our Tuesday WWE show, but for now, we are just trucking along on this episode, breaking down everything that happened in AEW and NXT this week. I would be remiss, though, if I began any episode of this podcast without a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a written review. Let everyone know how much you love the show. Let them know why you listen and why they should download and subscribe. All those written reviews mean so much, but even just the five-star ratings, we appreciate them immensely. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Not only do we tweet throughout all the major television shows, pay-per-views, and premium live events, but we let you know when new episodes drop, and we post pre- and post-show polls so that you guys can vote and give us your grades. No more important is it ever going to be than next week when we have three special events. That means six polls being posted, and we want your votes in all of them. You can also DM us or tweet us questions and comments that we will read on this show. We try to do that as much as we possibly can. One more note before we get into everything, we had another massive WWE edition of this podcast on Tuesday, so please make sure you go listen to that episode. If you have not already, you can do it after this podcast. You can pause now and go back. Either way, make sure you listen to our WWE episode this past week, and really, all of our WWE episodes since Triple H has taken over creative. I feel like WWE is in a really good zone right now. There's a ton of reports about ticket sales just flying off the shelves and them selling out major events coming up. Survivor Series, Clash at the Castle is moving more tickets. So WWE is running hot. AEW is moving into one of its signature shows. And NXT, it may be short on announcement time with Worlds Collide, but there's nevertheless a lot of very important stuff happening for NXT you know, next weekend with this World's Collide event, the end of NXT UK, and what a few months from now will be the beginning of NXT Europe. Now, as far as today's show, there is an absolute ton to go over, especially considering we had a title unification match on television, which none of us really expected going into last week's Dynamite. Coming out of this week's Dynamite, I think we probably understand why it was handled on TV instead of the pay-per-view. But we are going to break down AEW and NXT in a moment. One last 
note for you guys, please remember that we have timestamps in our episode descriptions. So if you only watch AEW or you only watch NXT, you only want to hear about one or the other, you can skip around. But of course, as always, I really hope anyone listening to this podcast is hearing what's going on across both brands because it's super important. And I got to say, after a number of weeks of me being pretty down on what we were getting both in AEW and NXT, I thought this was a huge bounce back week for both. There was still a lot for both brands that kind of irked me, especially AEW being so close to all out. A lot of stuff was not running on, you know, top cylinder, I guess is the best way to put it on all cylinders is what the turn of phrase actually is. Uh, But NXT was a massive bounce back episode after a lot of weeks that have really frustrated me as of late. So again, those timestamps are available in our episode descriptions, but we are starting this show by talking about AEW and going into Dynamite on Wednesday. It needs to be noted that again, they were 10 days away from the pay-per-view and there were only two confirmed matches one of which got changed during Dynamite and the other of which may no longer be happening. So that's where AEW stood. Now they did develop a lot of things on the show, but there are still plenty of questions remaining that need to be answered going into All Out. Rampage is coming up Friday. Then the go-home Dynamite is next Wednesday. So they're really running out of time to build this show. Let us get started though with what, it was the middle of the show, technically not really the main event, But it was the main event, the main attraction of why everyone watched Dynamite on Wednesday. And that was the AEW World Championship Unification, CM Punk the champion, John Moxley the interim champion. As I said, this was held at the middle of the show. There was no promotion. There were no video packages, nothing leading into this. I know that they did stuff online, the road to and all whatever previews they did. But on Dynamite, they said, hey, yeah, this match is coming up. That was it. I thought we might get promos from both guys because it was such a big match and it was built up to such a large degree. Now, at the bell of the match, we got loud dual chants for both guys. Punk did a roundhouse kick two minutes into the match, and I didn't even take notes on what happened before because I figured, hey, we're going to get a 20, 25, 30-minute match. You know, I, I don't say everything that happens, right? I try to skip over some stuff. So Punk did a roundhouse kick two minutes into this match, sold his injured foot, Mox capitalized on that with a massive lariat, the hammer elbows, and two Death Riders to become the undisputed champion in three minutes and nine seconds. That was the title unification match. Commentary sold the domination, but they pointed out Punk probably came back too soon from his injury as an excuse. Trainers tended to him immediately after the bell. Then they dragged him to the back while he continued selling the foot. Mox was then celebrating in the crowd and stuff. Now, what was missed live, or at least by many, is Punk actually hit the roundhouse kick with his right foot and immediately sold his left foot. Now, I presume that was for injury protection reasons that they didn't do a move where, for example, he did an axe handle off the top rope, landed on his feet and sold the injured foot immediately. So I presume they had him do a move where he connected with the non-injured foot and then went ahead and sold the injured foot, I presume because it was his plant foot on the move. The left foot is the injured foot, so he did sell the right one, but I'm just curious if the whole thing was planned that way. Mox later said anyone who doubted him didn't matter and nobody in professional wrestling could match up to him. Then he very interestingly said, I'm not just some guy, I'm the guy. And he also said, my time is now, which are direct quotes of Roman Reigns and John Cena. To me, there's no way that was a coincidence. 
I'm just trying to come up with a reason why he would do that. Maybe he was just feeling himself or it's his whole anti-WWE and I got to say it as frequently as I can deal in his head, you know, anti-sports entertainment, the whole thing. But when you just, you know, I was going to say retained or combined, but when you unified the AEW World Championship, taking the real one and, and the interim one, and it's your top moment in the company to be spending that time making WWE comments or quoting WWE talent, I just didn't really understand why he would do that. The promo though, just doing it was necessary. And I'm glad that AEW got him back on screen to address the win, as opposed to having this guy win the title and then just never seeing him for the rest of the show. So I I appreciated the concept. I don't know that I loved the way he went with it is the best way to put it. Now, as far as the match goes, I would call it a bait and switch, but technically they did deliver the match. The booking was extremely curious to say the least. The most likely scenario is they went with the interim route hoping Punk would be able to return for All Out in Chicago. But when they realized he would not be cleared for a full-time return, they booked this to take the title off him without him actually doing that much wrestling. And if you're going to do this, a three-minute squash, doing it in Chicago, where Punk is super-duper over, doesn't really make a lot of sense. Putting it two weeks earlier in, in Cleveland does make more sense. So if that is the reason, then I understand it. But... I'm not sure this was necessarily a better decision than having Punk return and simply relinquish the title to say, hey, look, I checked with the doctors and trainers. I'm not recovering fully anytime soon. I'm not going to be go- be able to go for another six months. I'm going to relinquish the title. Mox, you're the undisputed champion. And then he cuts the same promo that he did last week where he tears ap- apart Mox. Maybe, obviously, you leave the hangman part out of it. But he tears apart Mox and says all the same shit. It just doesn't lead to an immediate match. It leads to one down the road. And you have Mox retain the title as long as you possibly can to eventually get to that match where Punk gets to fight him and maybe Punk beats him and gets the title back. So I don't know why you would wait for all of that, right? If this was the booking. And then you go back to Punk's unplanned callout of Hangman Page last week. At least all reports are that it was unplanned. If that wasn't going to lead to either a title match at All Out or some type of immediate feud, it's even stranger in retrospect. And it can't even be the feud upon Punk's return at this point because he's already beaten Paige. The fact that Hangman wasn't mentioned at all on Dynamite this Wednesday seems to prove to me at least that the reports from last week of what Punk did kind of, I don't want to say going off script, but going away from what was planned was selfish and was not what AEW wanted. The other option, of course, is that they did this booking because there are legitimate backstage issues with Punk that led to AEW making this decision. After all, let's not forget there was a report last week that there was at least some doubt Punk would even show up on Dynamite. If I had to guess, that wasn't the case. But I do presume we'll find out one way or the other. In terms of the booking, it was smartly done for a squash. Not sure really what else there is to say. I am curious about how Punk was cleared to do any action if he wasn't cleared to completely return and wrestle. The medical precautions and all those hurdles that wrestlers have to jump through just to be able to compete remains a huge difference between WWE and AEW. Oh, I actually do have one more takeaway from the match. Mox didn't blade. And you may say, well, of course, he didn't have time to blade in three minutes and nine seconds. You would be wrong because Mace Warner or whatever that guy's name in that match, he bled like 90 seconds into it. So Mox didn't blade, good for him. Now, coming out of that match, 
and this booking, there are two notable questions. What are we getting at All Out? And what's really the deal with Mox going forward? Regarding All Out, initial reports are that Mox and Punk is still on for the show. That would obviously completely trash the initial option that we just discussed, that Punk is more injured than we were led to believe. I can't even fathom the creative that would be necessary to run that match back 10 days after Punk was so injured he could barely continue and got squashed by Mox. Maybe it could work. I think it would be a huge uphill battle for them to climb from a creative standpoint and a booking standpoint. Lots of people are speculating about MJF. I don't necessarily know why you would have MJF come back against Mox. That doesn't seem to be the right pairing. Now, if I was booking the damn territory, and obviously at this point, I don't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes, I would open all out with that casino ladder match or whatever it's called and have the winner fight Mox in the main event. You may say, hey, that's unfair for the number one contender, but these shows are like four and a half hours. So that's a pretty good amount of time to rest and recover. The problem is no one is announced for that match. And it seems like everyone who you would want to be in that match already has other bouts on the show. For example, Darby Allen and Miro would be great potential winners, but they're likely headed for a six-man match with House of Black. Of course, any match can be canceled, things can be changed, but as I've already mentioned a few times, we're now inside 10 days from All Out, and time is really running out. And then there's Mox himself. We already mentioned about him quoting Reigns and Cena on Dynamite, and you can feel however you want about that. What I found interesting was after the show, people in the crowd said that he shit on WWE, telling fans either not to watch the bullshit or crap, people use different words, but not to watch the bullshit on Mondays and Fridays and to instead watch AEW. What I will never understand at this point is why Mox is still going on about this four years later. The guy had a great run in WWE. He was never treated poorly, even if on occasion he didn't like creative and butted heads with Vince McMahon. This is the top guy right now in AEW talking to a crowd of AEW fans after he became the undisputed AEW champion. Hey, you shouldn't watch WWE. Why is he gatekeeping the wrestling that these fans or their friends watch that are at your show? I don't understand that mentality. To me, it's just completely absurd at this point. Me and my friend Mark, we're going to stop watching. So... Yeah, like Mox kind of get it together, dude, and just worry about being the greatest AEW undisputed champion that you possibly can be, because guess what? People freaking love you, and you are a great champion, so why bother with WWE anymore? I'll leave that to Chris Jericho and the Jericho Appreciation Society and the sports entertainer bullshit that they keep saying. Let them do that. You are so far above that at this point in your career, and you're so far removed from WWE and have completely reinvented yourself as John Moxley that you don't need to worry about that shit anymore. Speaking of Jericho, let's move on to him and what's going on there when it comes to Dynamite. So Jericho opened Dynamite with that scheduled Daniel Garcia face-to-face. Thought it was really smart to get Jericho and Brian Danielson out there to start the show. Two very recognizable faces, knowing that you have CM Punk and John Moxley in the middle of the show. So you're telling those WWE fans who may just be checking out AEW, hey, we have a lot of people that you know. So I did like the order of the way things were transpired basically on Wednesday. Anyway, Jericho said he didn't really mind the argument, but was bothered that Garcia put his hands on him last week. He just wanted an apology. Garcia came out, he said, 
Jericho knew the moment was special. And then he fluffed up his own match saying Jericho ruined that special moment as he was giving his respect to Brian Danielson, his idol after the bell. Jericho did apologize. And he said Garcia will have more moments like that in his future because he is the greatest technical sports entertainer. Fans chanted, you're a wrestler twice. Then Danielson's music hit before Garcia could answer. Brian said Jericho was bullying Garcia and that he is a wrestler. Jericho then bullied him some more, kind of proving Brian's point. Garcia said he won't choose between his mentor and his hero in public. Jericho grabbed him to stop him from leaving, and Garcia shoved him a second time. Fans gave an appropriate, you deserve it chant. I thought that was really funny. Jericho said he's never seen why people call Danielson the best wrestler in the world, and that he knows more about wrestling than Brian ever will. Danielson suggested Stu Hart and Owen Hart would both say he's better than Jericho before issuing a challenge. Jericho accepted for all out before Jake Hager attacked Brian from behind. I thought it was an extremely strong opening segment. The whole sports entertainer shtick, it's over the top. It's grading for me. I'm done with it. But Garcia being pulled in two different directions between his mentor and between his hero, it's just a really good storyline. And it became obvious a couple weeks ago, we would see Jericho Danielson at All Out. So using this as the vehicle to get us there, very smart. It was a really nice way to make the match official. Though I do wish they held off the return of the Lionheart gimmick for this match. And they didn't use it for the Mox title of defense that, again, didn't even need to happen in the first place. Using the Lionheart thing, incorporating it here with Brian Danielson, the technical wrestling, all that, it just would have been a much better build for this match than it would have been for the Mox match. But that's a nitpick, just something I wish they had done. Now, as I said, there was a lot of big news that happened on Dynamite throughout AEW this week. The next piece of that had to do with the women's division. We'll start with Rampage, where Britt Baker and her crew were upset that they weren't on the all-out card. Baker said she would watch Thunderstorm implode when they fight again. She pointed out Storm lost the title match, but buddied up to Rosa and is already getting another title match while they're still waiting. I mean, that's technically true. So she was right about that. On Dynamite, Thunder Rosa announced in a one-minute backstage interview, it may have been shorter than that, that she will be unable to defend her women's championship due to injury and an interim champion will be crowned at All Out. So the same announcement that CM Punk got to make over 15 minutes in the ring by himself in front of the crowd, Rosa was allowed to spit out backstage without any sympathy from fans or any time to let it sink in right before a commercial break. That is pathetic stuff and it's a continuation of an awful title reign for her that is in no way her fault. It's completely booking. This was a perfect example. It was a paradigm of the way AEW views its men's division and its women's division. Not just to mention, of course, CM Punk versus Thunder Rosa, or if this was Britt Baker, maybe in the CM Punk role versus Thunder Rosa, who maybe is the equivalent of a hangman page. Probably not. She's not even at that level, so it's really tough to find a parallel for her off the cuff here. But it shows you the the drastic juxtaposition. Punk in the ring, 15 minutes, adoration of fans. Rosa, backstage, one minute, slinks away. And then there's more that happened here, right? So the, the four-way match, it's going to involve Tony Storm, the number one contender, that's appropriate. Britt Baker, who happens to be number two on the rankings, appropriate as well. Although personally, I don't know... Like, I know she wrestled on Dynamite Wednesday. We'll talk about that in a moment. I don't know the last time I've seen her in, like, a singles match. So 
How she's still number two, I have no idea. But the other two are Jamie Hayter and Hikaru Shida. Was this announcement a big deal? No, it wasn't made a big deal because this was announced during a match where Billy Gunn fought his son. So they didn't even wait for the match to end and then make a huge deal of it, put it on the big screen, blah, blah, blah. During a match, they said, oh, by the way, these are the four women competing for the title. Because heaven forbid we make the women feel important or put some fresh blood, by the way, in the main title picture. Athena and Anna Jay are both ranked. They're ranked three and four. She does not in the top five. Hater is five, so it's okay for her to be here. But putting one of them in this match would have been a little bit better. And I say some, I say that as someone who loves Hikaru Shida and thinks she's one of the best women's wrestlers in the entire company. And yes, I realize Athena is feuding with Jade Cargill and is probably going to get a TBS title match at All Out. I get it. But why not put Anna Jay in here? Why not say, hey, you know what? We're kind of in a bad way right now. Let's throw Athena here as well and save that Jade match. Let's put that on Dynamite and get people watching where there's a title change potentially and a big women's moment where they get, I don't know, more than eight minutes in the ring together. They get 15 minutes. Why don't you do something a little bit different? Now, one would think Tony's going to win here, but I can't put anything past them at this point. I didn't think Britt Baker, or I hoped at least, that Britt Baker would not win the women's Owen. She won that. By the way, those titles have disappeared. We don't see them anymore. I know those aren't championships that they carry around, but she doesn't talk about it anymore. She doesn't care. She doesn't mention it. She doesn't carry it with her. Rebel doesn't hold it. Nothing. It just, the thing's completely disappeared. If Baker wins this, man, the criticism is going to rain down on AEW. So on Dynamite, Baker did fight Kylan King, though King did get some offense initially. Baker took her down pretty quick, hit the stomp, and won with a lockjaw in four minutes. I mean, what are we doing? Baker talked shit after the bell, calling out Storm, who sported a really new short haircut, looked pretty cool. Hater attacked her from behind. Sheeta made the save to clear the ring, and that basically set up the fatal four-way. Yeah, frustrating again. Kylan King, unsigned, good wrestler, by the way, but unsigned. She's getting multiple dynamite matches, women's on, women on the roster signed full-time, not getting opportunities. Let's move over to the trios tournament. On Rampage, best friends fought the Trustbusters. Commentary tried to sell Parker Bordeaux as a monster, but he looked sloppy as hell in the ring. He had a triple shotgun dropkick. Slim J hit a cool floating cutter inside and a strange twisting splash outside. Orange Cassidy took Parker out with an orange punch, but he ate offense for a near fall. Danhausen then appeared in the crowd to curse Slim J, who ate a double choke slam before Orange jumped on best friend's shoulders to hit an avalanche falling splash for the win. Now, why Trustbusters were in this tournament, I'll never know. Why they exist together and are getting TV time, I have no idea other than the fact that some of them were previously in NXT and WWE. Uh, there were a couple nice moments here, but just being candid, I thought the match largely sucked. All the talent they have, they should have. there should have been a better team to fight best friends. On Rampage, Buddy Matthews fought Serpentico. Buddy hit a shotgun dropkick at the bell, plus a buckle bomb, lifted knee, and pump handle finisher for the win in one minute and eight seconds. It was great to see him back. I just thought it was a waste of time in the ring, especially considering the win was immediately made moot because after the bell, Miro randomly made his a turn on Rampage, dropped Malachi Black's mask on the stage, and then destroyed Matthews, making him look like an absolute chump. This was just dumbfounding the way they booked this. So staying with House of Black on Dynamite, we had House of Black against Will Ospreay and Aussie Open in that trios tournament. That's why I mentioned those other things before this. 
Pac basically said he would murder them in the match during a backstage promo. There was a triple stereo tope shortly after the bell. Osprey did a huge corkscrew off the top rope outside before hitting an assisted shotgun dropkick in the corner. Ray Phoenix had an awesome double assisted springboard arm drag. Penta Oscuro got a hot tag with a Casadora release into a crucifix bomb. It quickly became a tornado style match. There was a choreographed stereo one-on-two Poison Rana on everyone else in the ring except for Pac and Osprey. Osprey no-sold the big Pac move and hit the Oz Cutter to knock them both down. Pac came back with a sick avalanche brainbuster. Osprey completely flipped out of a Huracarana from the corner, landing on his feet only to eat a flying cutter from Phoenix. Penta hit a step-up tope before Phoenix did the Escalero Tornillo. Osprey got double knees up for the Black Arrow for a false finish. Pac then countered Stormbreaker into a Huracarana. Penta hit a Canadian Destroyer. Pac hit a Tornado DDT but got his Black Arrow stopped, so he jumped backwards off the tiny ring post for a sky-high moonsault outside that was very eye-catching. All of a sudden, Kip Sabian was shown in the crowd with a box on his head. Pac removed it, and it turned out to not be Kip Sabian, just some other dude. Kip then attacked Pac from behind, and he did a suplex on him off of the barricade. Then he took the box and put it on his head in the crowd. The referee, of course, missed this entire thing. Back inside, Phoenix ate a triple forearm and an assisted lifted springboard Ozcutter as Osprey and Aussie Open advanced in a 26-minute match. Immediately after the bell, the Elite entered. Osprey taunted Kenny Omega to basically tease their semifinal meeting. Omega kind of wanted to get to the ring. Don Callis stopped him, and nothing else really happened after that. Now, this was an absolute banger of a main event, and this did deserve to be in the main event spot. Given the lack of tagging and the interference finish, I can't go higher than an A for this. But I'm really stuck between 4.25 and 4.5 because of that interference. But man, the moves in this match, I know it was a spot fest. I know that's not what I normally love, and I I don't usually grade those very high. But the spots were spectacular. I mean, it wasn't a lot of that choreographed bullshit that we got from like Lucha Bros, Young Bucks, and that ladder match, and some of their other matches together. It all really flowed well. I did mention the one choreographed Poison Rana, but that was really the only time. Besides that, it was just inside of the ring, outside of the ring, people flying everywhere, some of the best wrestlers in the world here. So I'm going to go ahead and say 4.5 stars along with that A. As for the booking, it just depresses me to no end that the Lucha Bros lose every major match they are in. It is infuriating that Death Triangle is dropping a tournament match in their home promotion while Aussie Open and Will Ospreay won. And Osprey, you obviously don't want him to take the fall. But either of the Aussie Open guys could have easily lost. Now look, I understand. The goal was to do Omega Osprey and their teams in the semifinals. I get it. But they still could have booked that without having to have Osprey and Aussie Open go through Death Triangle. Why could they not have beaten Best Friends or the Trustbusters? Why did they have to match up in the first round? I just don't understand that. That to me is a personal disappointment. And you guys know I love Phoenix and Pentagon. It just frustrates me to no end that these awesome wrestlers almost never get their time in the light. And it's been three years this company has existed. I know they had a tag team title run. That's the only thing they ever have won in this company. It's it's immensely frustrating. Now, I did like the return of Sabian. I enjoyed how that was handled, though 95% of the box on the head gimmick was done off TV. So 
you really needed to be an AEW fan watching Dark, Elevation, all those you know YouTube shows that they do to really understand what the gimmick was. Fans in the arena seem to know what was up though, so you know, shut my mouth, I guess, right? Now, I presume Sabian will challenge for the All-Atlantic title at All Out. All in all, this was super entertaining, a great end to a dynamite that was good in parts and certainly disappointed in other parts. On Rampage, we had a tag team title match, Swerve in Our Glory making their first defense against Private Party. Keith Lee dominated on his hot tag before Swerve Strickland hit his heel kick and the JML driver for the win. After the bell, the guy shook hands. I'm not being short about this on purpose. I just didn't really think there was much to the match until the finish. Then on Dynamite, we had Billy Gunn against Colton Gunn. On Rampage, Billy cut a promo on his kids saying he'd spank their asses on Dynamite before the Acclaim joined him to scissor him. As far as the match, Billy stopped himself at one point because he was stomping on Colt too hard. Stokely Hathaway used a boombox to take out Max Caster. Anthony Bowens got thrown into the steel steps outside. That caused the distraction. It allowed Colton to hit a low blow on Billy and then hit the Colt 45 to beat his father. Gun Club took Stokes' card after the bell. I thought they were already with him, so I was confused why they did that moment. But then they started beating on Billy. I just really couldn't have given any less of a shit about the match. But, you know, the creative did work for what they were trying to do. So the heels attacked, like I said, after they took the cards. Then Swerve on Our Glory made the save, helping Billy up. And then they took a long look at the Acclaimed, which were babyfaces here. Now, given they're the number three ranked tag team, I presumed this was setting up a title match at All Out. And that got official, got made official backstage with the Acclaimed saying they're the best homegrown tag team in AEW. Now, the rankings here are actually wild, right? FTR and Young Bucks are one and two. Neither of them are challenging for the title. The Young Bucks are in the trios tournament. But as far as I know, as of right now, not booked for All Out. And FTR is booked for All Out, but not in any type of tag team title match, either defending one of their straps or going after the AEW titles. Then you have Acclaimed in the third spot. So all things considered, makes sense to put them in a title match here. Dark Order and Gun Club. Now, I know the trios tournament is ongoing. But what has happened to this all-time greatest AEW tag team division that we were talking about like six months ago? Just a absolute smorgasbord of incredibly talented tag teams. And I like Acclaimed in terms of like the gimmick and and they're fun guys and I think they deserve success and I root for them. And Dark Order, I know they can get the crowd going because they have those exciting hot tag sequences. But what are we doing when these are the the three, four, and five with Gun Club tag teams in your rankings and your one and two teams are not getting a title opportunity at one of your two biggest pay-per-views of the year. To me, it's all just, it's messy and doesn't really work. On Dynamite, Christian Cage was backstage selling his injured arm in a brace. He said he was insulted by Jungle Boy throwing away the olive branch that he extended last week. And he said he's seen it all, he's done it all in this business. Christian said he's special and will prove Jungle Boy is not in his league even at less than 100% going into it. So he accepted the match for All Out. It was a fine promo. Given we had so many weeks where Jungle Boy was unable to attack Christian backstage because of security or one reason or the other, I would have liked to have seen Christian take the match and then Jungle Boy attack him and go after that injured arm. I don't really know why they didn't do that. On Dynamite, uh, Dax Harwood fought Jay Lethal. There was a nice suplex sequence here between the two guys. Dax avoided lethal injection, catching lethal for a springboard Liger bomb and a near fall. Harwood converted a pinfall into a sharpshooter, but Sanjay Dutt jumped on the ring apron for a distraction to create a break. They countered pin attempts numerous times, 
with Lethal ultimately rolling Hardwood over, grabbing his tights for the win in 13 minutes. Very classic style wrestling match here. High quality. There were some referee botches down the stretch. Not a huge deal. I went with 3.75 stars and a B plus. Sanjay then announced after the bell that their trios match for All Out would not be what the babyfaces expected because Lethal would actually be teaming with the Motor City Machine Guns instead of himself and Satnam Singh. Now, obviously, I shit all over this match booking last week, and it deserved every ounce of criticism I gave it. This change will absolutely make for a better match by comparison. It's probably going to be an awesome match because MCMG is really good. But on the other side of the coin, this kind of makes even less sense from a storyline standpoint. Like this is clearly, in my opinion, Tony Khan making good on a shitty piece of booking. But it's also putting a team that has never appeared in AEW on one of the company's four signature pay-per-views. Now, MCMG is good enough where that's okay in a vacuum. But as I said last week, Wardlow and FTR, I'm gonna say they are so hot right now, but they were so hot that both of them should be involved in separate matches with their titles on the line or going after titles. So is this an improvement to the individual match booking? Yes, it is because they went from a really shitty match that was basically gonna be based on Wardlow powerbombing Satnam Singh for no reason to what can be and should be a very entertaining six-man tag team match. But does it fix the creative? No, it doesn't. In fact, it makes even less sense than the one that preceded it. I also failed to understand, and I am not someone who dislikes Jay Lethal, but why are we getting so much Jay Lethal? Why is he wrestling every single week and involved in a storyline with all of these guys again when you have such a deep roster and so many people who could be fighting Wardlow, who could be fighting FTR? I just don't understand what they're doing. But yes, will the match be entertaining? It will be very entertaining at all out. On Rampage, the factory were playing dominoes and cards simultaneously. When Powerhouse Hobbs flipped their table, he was upset that they didn't take care of Ricky Starks. QT Marshall promised they would take care of business, saying, my word is my bond. I could have sworn last week Hobbs was disinterested in their help and angry that they would even offer. Also, why does Powerhouse Hobbs, this mammoth of a man, why does he need the help of the factory to take out Starks? I just didn't get that at all. On Dynamite, Starks at the ring. He said he's in a bad way. He's pissed off. He explained, even as people want to see you do good, they never want to see you do better than them. And that is very true. Starks said he showed Hobbs what it means to be someone in the industry. And it made him even more angry that Hobbs attacked his previously broken neck because he knew that it was a delicate area. And then he challenged Hobbs for All Out. Really extremely strong promo as usual from Starks. Given there's only one week left, I'd have liked Hobbs to just have answered him on the show so that we could get more build to the match next week. This match, I think it's going to end up being a banger, but Starks absolutely has to be the one to beat Hobbs in Chicago. On Rampage, Claudio Castagnoli opened with a open challenge for his ROH championship. Dustin Rhodes answered saying they have battled before and used to have it in common that neither is world champion. Technically, they still do, but that's besides the point. Claudio's promo was actually cut, uh, like they edited it. And then he accepted the challenge. They shook hands. The storyline makes sense. Is it exciting? Not particularly. On Rampage, the FTW Championship was on the line. Hook defending against Zach Clayton. Zach was introduced as from the Jersey Shore. A reminder, 
He is the husband of Wow from that show. He actually cut another pretty decent promo. So credit to him for being good on the stick. Uh, Hook tapped out Clayton with Red Rum in 10 seconds. Literally, the bell rang, he put him in Red Rum, and he got the submission. Now, if this had all happened last week and it wasn't promoted, I would have praised the booking. The idea of Clayton saying, I want a challenge, and Hook saying, okay, let's go, and then beating him in 10 seconds and it all happening in one little segment, I think I would have loved that, actually. But given this guy got two promos and it was one of the featured matches on this show, it was pretty damn disappointing. After the match, Matt Menard and Angelo Parker cut a backstage promo suggesting they go after the FTW title. It's interesting to me that with all these titles in AEW, there is now so much focus on the FTW now that a neophyte is holding it, even though it is not a legitimate title. It's not recognized in AEW. Yet the TNT champion has no challenger. All Atlantic, it seems like they're about to give him one in Kip Sabian, you know, et cetera. All, all, there's all this stuff going on. The Ring of Honor, Samoa Joe's disappeared from TV with the TV title. But yeah, let's use the FTW title. I do like it as a lower card feud for the 2.0 guys. They're both people that Hook can easily beat. But again, this guy needs to at some point wrestle like a 10 minute match. And I really don't know why we're not getting that. On Rampage, Athena fought Penelope Ford. This I think was the in-ring return for Ford from injury. Kip stood in the crowd with the box on his head as he's done for months randomly. So they did at least show it to us a couple days before we got it on Dynamite. Literally 30 seconds after returning from commercial, Athena won with the Eclipse. The baddies immediately attacked. Jade Cargill was on stage with a sledgehammer that she licked, and then she slammed it onto Athena's metal wings that she uses as like ring gear to make her entrance. Nothing seemed to happen to them. They didn't even seem to get broken or anything. Athena then ate a sledgehammer shot to the stomach, and that ended the segment. Between not giving this match any time to an awful, slow, plodding post-match segment. All I could do was shake my head here. If it's not Athena taking the TBS title off of Jade, I'm really not sure at this point who else is going to do it. I know it was supposed to be Chris Statlander, but now it's just, I mean, do they believe in her enough to put the title on her? I really don't know. If it's going to be the case, Athena needs to get built up and beating Ford 30 seconds after returning from commercial, that is not building a wrestler up. That, That is not acceptable. Also on Rampage, Ruby Soho and Ortiz were backstage saying they've been chomping at the bit. It's champing at the bit, by the way, uh, to fight Sammy Guevara and Ty Mello. Then Ortiz screamed and that was about it. So it's starting to kind of feel like the Sammy and Kingston match may be pushed off the show for Sammy and Mello against Ruby Soho and Ortiz. Huge downgrade. At least it's another match with a woman on the show, so... Minor credit there. That was really it in terms of Dynamite. But before we move on, there are a couple things that we need to address in terms of news and notes coming out of Dynamite and coming out of the last week in AEW. I did want to take a moment first to address reports from AEW's talent meeting on Wednesday before Dynamite. Apparently, there was a lot of general like personnel stuff. But PW Insider and Fightful both reported that Tony Khan made it a point to tell the wrestlers that he sent a letter to WWE's legal counsel, Stephanie McMahon and Nick Khan, advising them not to contact AEW talent and accusing them of tampering. When I read that, I swear to you, I laughed out loud. It is the absolute height of absurdity for that to have happened because I'm afraid I've got some bad news. But I'm afraid I've got some bad news. 
If I was WWE's lawyer, and I'm not, but if I was, I would have seen that email and replied immediately with three words. Fuck off, Tony. Now you may ask, why would that be your reaction, Silver King, if you were a lawyer? Well, because Tony is being a hypocrite here. First of all, Gallows and Anderson said on their podcast that Khan not only contacted them while they were under contract to WWE, but even went over potential creative plans with them should they join AEW. Matt Hardy said something similar. I don't know if it was about himself or about Jeff, but it may have been both. And I personally know of at least two other WWE talents who were waiting out their contracts or undecided about whether they would resign that had direct contact with AEW about potential roles. Now, was it Tony Khan himself who maybe called them and offered them? I don't know. Those things I, I can't tell you. But it was AEW people, either talent or employees of the company, who contacted them to find out when their contracts were ending and if they were interested in potentially coming over there. So... This is hypocritical as shit. On top of that, there's really no such thing as contract tampering in wrestling because these guys and girls are not under any type of collective bargaining agreement. There's nothing wrong whatsoever with representatives of WWE reaching out to AEW talent or AEW representatives reaching out to WWE talent and saying, hey, when does your contract end? This is something we would like to know because we might be interested in signing you at that time. Tony Khan literally has no legal recourse to prevent WWE from doing this. Now, that said, if WWE tried to induce someone to break their contract, that would be illegal. But there's no reports of that having happened, and certainly, as far as I know, no proof of anything like that having happened. Same thing the other way. If Tony Khan induced someone in WWE to break their contract or you know, said, hey, let's come to a deal and they made an agreement and signed it before they left the company, that would be illegal. But that is not what is reported as having happened here. So to send that letter and then make a show of it in front of the talent, as far as I'm concerned, is absolutely laughable. But Tony Khan is apparently worried about that. Meanwhile, there's all kinds of rumors swirling backstage about drama in AEW. Some stuff involving Thunder Rosa, It's unconfirmed, so I'm not really going to get into that. Some stuff about other people, again, unconfirmed, not going to get into that. But one thing that has been confirmed is that Eddie Kingston and Sammy Guevara got into an altercation a couple of weeks ago after Sammy, unplanned, called Eddie a, quote, fat piece of shit in a promo that was edited off of Rampage, supposedly building into their match for All Out. Now, most are reporting that altercation led to what I would define as an open-handed punch to the face that led to Kingston being suspended for two weeks. And he confirmed to PW Insider that he was suspended and he said that he was wrong for doing what he did. So he admitted fault and that's obviously very big of him to do that. Um, He did not admit to open-handed punching him or smacking him or doing anything like that. But that's kind of besides the point. Because holy shit, you guys know I am a fan, a legitimate fan of both Kingston and Guevara. Sammy, I thought at one point, and I've said it numerous times on this podcast, had a really bright future as an AEW pillar, but this guy does not seem to be able to get out of his own way. And this isn't like this guy is 22 years old or 24 and still figuring it out. This guy is 29 years old. He is beyond a full adult at this point. Between the storylines, the stuff with Ty, 
the shit he said on that podcast about Sasha Banks that resulted, by the way, in a suspension for Sammy at that time. This promo and incident, the guy needs to figure his shit out. And on top of all of the real life aspects of this, it is immensely dumb to bury an opponent in that way in a promo. We talk all the time on this show about how good promos build up their opponent, but then come over the top at the end saying, I'm better, or I'm still gonna kick your ass, or you don't have this that I have. Look at the way Brian Danielson, Chris Jericho, and Paul Heyman, just as an example. Look at the way they cut promos and speak. If the best you can do is calling someone a fat piece of shit, you should not have a mic in your hand. This is national television, not the independents. You need to be better than that. So a lot of backstage drama in AEW, like I said, I don't want to address the rumors because those are unconfirmed and a lot of people can just talk shit and blow things out of proportion. But the Kingston Guevara drama is something that clearly did happen and therefore I felt it was appropriate to address. So here we are, we're counting down time to All Out. There's about a handful of matches announced at this point. I presume we're gonna get more on Rampage this coming Friday and Dynamite next Wednesday for the go-home. But man, like for an AEW card, I know that some of the recent cards have been built late. This one is just astounding how late it's being built. And perhaps some of the reason for that is Thunder Rose's injury and, and maybe whatever's happening with CM Punk. But I am extremely curious to find out on Wednesday what the final AEW All Out card is gonna look like and if John Moxley is indeed going to be in the main event. And if so, if he will be fighting CM Punk again or if they're gonna figure out something else. So we got a week and let's see what AEW does. Let's now move over to NXT where there was an absolutely loaded episode as the penultimate one heading into Worlds Collide, which will air on Sunday after WWE Clash at the Castle and ahead of AEW All Out. There is an absolute ton to talk about from this particular edition of NXT, not only what happened on the show, but what it means going forward for the brand and WWE as a whole. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to it. Braun Breaker opened the show putting over JD McDonough for their heatwave match before calling out NXT UK champion Tyler Bate who also put over JD before calling himself the first and last NXT UK champion given the Europe move is around the corner. And that is true. Bate is the first champion and he will be the last one. Bate said he wanted to unify the titles and Braun agreed to do it at Worlds Collide. It was a babyface on babyface promo. So while both did their jobs well, it was really nothing to write home about. I don't exactly see why this title in particular could not have remained until Europe starts. Like it has a great lineage a limited number of champions. All of them are awesome. I don't know why you can't just defend the NXT UK title on NXT until NXT Europe begins and then take that title away and you change it and you have a new one that looks differently. I suppose the idea is they don't want two world champions on one brand that only has two hours of television. And that's my exact problem right now, pretty much with all the Ring of Honor titles being on AEW. So it'd probably be hypocritical of me to say that, oh, they're definitely making a huge mistake by doing this, but it just feels like, yeah, you could merge the tag titles. Yeah, you could merge the women's titles, but the UK title and the Heritage Cup, perhaps you could figure out a way to utilize those. Maybe Bait only shows up once every couple of months, but yeah, you know, maybe merging them all at the end of the day is the right idea. Now, this is gonna wind up being a really good match. But Braun powering through bait and continuing his endless title reign, it's really 
not the most exciting booking, especially given his last two title feuds have been horrendous. And what was even more disheartening is that JD later cut a promo where it was revealed he was hanging upside down. He telling Braun that, hey man, good luck at Worlds Collide. I'm going to see you on the other side. So they're continuing this feud. They're allowing Tyler Bates to like interject himself here, but they're continuing the JD McDonough feud in this situation, which is different than one that I'm going to address later that kind of got all shoved together with the women. If you want to say that JD is still the number one contender and has been, then this is a spot where you can do a triple threat match. You have JD take the fall. Bate never technically loses. He remains the uncrowned kind of champion. And then when you start NXT Europe, boom, you have him right in that title match right away and you kind of move on from there. So this is a spot where I would have done a triple threat match, but that's not what they're doing because apparently NXT hates me and refuses to allow me to enjoy some main event booking. I like almost everything else the brand does, but what they are doing with Braun Breaker, having to go through the awful Joe Gacy feud for too long, and now continuing the JD McDonough feud where McDonough got no heat until he actually got a chance to wrestle. But the gimmick is not over. He never should have been immediately put into the title feud in the first place. I just do not understand why they are having JD McDonough continue to feud with Braun Breaker after they already had Joe Gacy feud with him for way too long, when there are so many other people on this NXT roster who should be elevated into the main event picture so they could actually not just face Braun, but maybe actually take the title off of him. So NXT wanted to put Bate over a little bit. They had Bate against Von Wagner on the show. There was a short vignette for Bate followed by a Wagner promo with Mr. Stone. Wagner predictably overpowered Bate for most of the match. Bate hit a springing lariat, flipping out of a chokeslam and landing a ton of strikes. He added an exploder suplex and a spinning boy for the 1-2-3, winning the match and getting a really great pop afterward. This was necessary to establish bait, like I said, in front of this crowd. It doesn't change the expectations for the unification match, but it was good to see him beat Wagner, who has been built relatively strong in NXT. We also had an NXT UK tag team title match on the show, Briggs and Jensen against Gallus. There was a short vignette for Gallus and Fallon Henley got into it with Lash Legend backstage before the match began. Gallus dominated for most of the match until Briggs got the hot tag. Suddenly, Legend attacked Henley at ringside. Briggs and Jensen then fought off pretty deadly until there was a countout. As Gallus was celebrating, all four Diamond Mine guys attacked and cleared the ring. Gallus and Deadly later talked trash to each other. And then even later, Diamond Mine was amped up for a six-man next week with Julius Creed and Roderick Strong getting into it backstage when Julius said he wasn't part of the team because he lost their trust. Briggs and Jensen wished them luck. Strong called them dorks, and then both teams suggested they would decide the best champion soon enough. This was fine given what I believe they are attempting to do, which is put all four teams in a winner-take-all match for the Undisputed Tag Team Championships. It's the only booking that really makes sense here. Creed versus Briggs and Jensen, it's been done, and it's not special enough for a show called Worlds Collide. Given Briggs and Jensen, yeah, they may be NXT UK Tag Team Champions, but yeah, they're not really from the UK or from that brand, really. With these four teams, including Pretty Deadly and Gallus, I do think a match at Worlds Collide could be a banger. As I said a couple weeks ago, Briggs and Jensen, they've definitely improved, but they are still subpar, especially when you compare them to the other three teams that could potentially be in this match. We had the Grayson Waller effect with Apollo Crews. This was a talk show in the ring and the first edition of it at that. Waller had picture in picture with both cameras on him. I thought that was really cool. And he said, 
His show was about the host, not the guest. Fans chanted Johnny Wrestling. Obviously, Waller, quote unquote, retired Johnny. He took him out after that promo on his final night in NXT. Of course, Gargano just re-signed with WWE and appeared on Raw. I thought that was a very smart chant from the crowd. That was cool. Waller tried to shut them up. He powered through it. He said Cruz was a clout chaser trying to steal opportunities. Cruz said he was in NXT to find something that he was missing. Waller called Cruz out for his Nigerian accent and gimmick. So Cruz did it. He actually did the accent saying he was proud of his heritage and it got him a win at WrestleMania, but it wasn't what he was about in totality. Waller then asked if the visualizations were real and accused Cruz of knowing Diamond Mine would be attacked and doing nothing to stop it. Waller said he'd run Cruz out of NXT and Cruz got a huge pop calling Waller a low budget version of Miz. Waller said that's a compliment. Fans chanted low budget Miz. Waller said Cruz had to tell his kids he couldn't cut it on Mondays and Fridays. Cruz said he was a champion on both of those days and will be on Tuesday soon. Then he slugged Waller and left. Was this the greatest talk show segment? No. Was it overly scripted? Sure but it was far better than I expected. And both Waller and Cruz came out of it looking good, despite the fact that you could tell they were kind of talking around having to hit certain lines. There's a real intensity to their feud. Both of them can go in the ring, and I'm definitely excited for the match. The question I have, though, is who's going to win? Because you just brought Apollo Cruz back to the brand, and it seemed like they were ready to elevate him to main event status right away, but he's taken a big tumble down the card. Grayson Waller was at the very top of the card. He's taken a tumble down. Both of them need to win. Both of them need to be reestablished. Both of them should really be in the main event picture. So this is something that NXT kind of does to itself on occasion, where they don't really have a clear winner that, you know, and a storyline for that person going forward in a match. So I really don't know what's going to happen here. In some ways, that's exciting, right? To find out what goes down, see how they book it. What do they do about the finish? Does Waller cheat? Does Cruz just beat him clean? I'm going to be very curious to see when, you know, what happens when this transpires. And I believe it's on TV next week, not at Worlds Collide. It kind of felt like a pay-per-view match, a premium live event match. But on NXT, this could definitely main event and be super exciting. Alba Fire cut a promo in a video package saying she's a warrior and will do whatever it takes to win. She mentioned Lash. And I couldn't tell whether she was referring to like just winning that feud or suggesting that it was ongoing. Legend has already moved on to Henley, so I did find that to be strange. Either way, the start and stop with Alba Fire, it's frustrating. She's on TV two weeks in a row looking great. Then she's off TV for a month. She is the best women's wrestler on the NXT roster right now. Get her ass in the ring and strap her up. It is not that hard. Indy Hartwell had a match against Blair Davenport. Davenport got a vignette before the match and was given a great entrance. She had a really good draping neckbreaker on Hartwell when she was trying to get inside the ring. Indy had a nice spinebuster for a near fall but then she struggled on an inside cradle and struggled on the rotation. She also didn't get herself up all the way for Blair's finisher, which ended up looking pretty awful. After the bell, Davenport delivered a huge knee to the face and Hartwell looked like a total jobber, losing in four minutes and then taking a shot like that. After a commercial break, Indy cut a promo sitting on the apron saying she's hit rock bottom. She said she's always been her own problem and hasn't made a single stride since her proclamation at Stand and Deliver that she would figure herself out after the losses basically of her best friend and her husband without saying as much. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Dexter Loomis appears on the other side of the ring to a massive pop. They crawled to each other on the canvas. They hugged and they kissed to an even bigger pop and then an index chant before he carried her out of the arena. 
Then they're at the front door of the performance center. He hands her another drawing that said, goodbye, Indy, for now, I love you. He opens the doors, walks outside, and gets arrested by police that were waiting for him, presumably from kidnapping Miz. I thought it was a great bit of main roster continuity going in the opposite direction from NXT up to the main roster and WWE down to NXT, given Loomis showed his face on television for an extended time. And yeah, you would assume police are looking for him if he kidnaps someone like The Miz, who isn't just a wrestler, but is like known as a star in the industry, right? Like beyond the industry in Hollywood. Now, ever since Indy slipped on that top rope a month ago, she seems to just have lost some confidence in the ring. And I hate that for her. That is really unfortunate. And I'm saying this for real, not in kayfabe. She was rolling. She was improving so much in the way, but it's been completely stagnant for her since. And it's really unfortunate that it's happened. I do wonder if that had to do with the departure of Candice LeRae and not really being under her wing anymore. I don't know how much Candice was working with her, but Candice is obviously an incredible wrestler. And if they were doing work in the PC, maybe there was something between them that really helped Indy improve. And then losing Candice, you know, it, it fell apart. There's also Persia Parada. Maybe there was something with them as a team where she had a comfort there. Maybe she's more comfortable in tag team wrestling than she is as a solo performer. But it's very clear, once Candice was gone, once Persia was gone, she just has not been the same person. What I am appreciative of is that at least they made a story out of it. And they've given her this storyline, wrapping things up with Loomis when everything was left open-ended. I thought Loomis might carry her out of the ring to the main roster with him. But it seems like they're using him instead as a catalyst for change and to simultaneously tie up that loose end. I thought it was extremely well done. The camera work was also exceptional the entire segment from start to finish. That was a good one, yeah. Now, after the actual match, Blair Davenport grabbed the mic to say she was the number one contender in the UK and she should be in the United States as well. Mandy Rose entered by herself without toxic attraction and actually got babyface cheers. She said she's the most dominant women's champion and wanted some respect put on her name. Thankfully, Mako Satamora immediately answered with commentary putting her over huge, as she deserves to be, by the way, given she is the final boss. Satamora told Mandy she's wrong because Satamora is the most dominant. Rose called her a legend and said she would get respect by beating her. Satamora issued a unification challenge at Worlds Collide, and then Davenport injected herself into it, saying she deserves to be involved as the number one contender. Mako agreed. Mandy seemed to be okay with it also. And you could see the booking coming a mile away, but it didn't really ease the pain one iota. First of all, I'm pretty sure Davenport was never officially named number one contender. But even if she does hold that distinction, if she is in this match to take the fall so Mandy can become the unified champion and steal the strap from Mako fucking Satamora, it will legitimately hurt my soul. Like, it's painful to even consider that booking. Now, if Davenport happens to come out as champion, that would lessen the blow. But I do find it hard to believe that they would put the unified title on someone who's had one NXT match on American television. It just doesn't seem likely that they're going to bring Davenport over and then have her take the titles off of both Mandy Rose and Mako Satamora. If Mandy wins, at least she can pin Davenport instead of Satamora which I hate because she shouldn't lose the title that way, but it would lessen the blow a little bit. 
if Davenport was to win, she has to pin one of those two women. And I don't really see a situation where they have Davenport pin Mandy Rose, even though she absolutely positively should, especially if Satomura takes Mandy out and does a lot of damage to her and Blair comes in and gets the win. That would make sense. But in NXT UK, if Satomura was eventually going to drop her title, Davenport being the one to take it off of her always made sense. Doing it here in the United States in the confines of a triple threat match, it just doesn't really feel like it should be done that way. What this should be is Satomura murdering Mandy Rose one-on-one. But it is just not fair to expect her to live in America and move to the United States when it was never part of her deal. She obviously is based in Japan. She does a lot of work in Europe with training women and things like that. So she has a special deal that it really worked out for her to go over to NXT UK, be the one to beat Alba Fire, as she's called now, be the champion, be that final boss, and put over the next big woman on the brand, which indeed is Blair Davenport. So that all, kind of the way they were doing that made sense, but you can't expect Satomura to be the NXT Women's Champion, live in America, be on TV constantly, when that was never part of her plan. But in that case, I feel like Alba Fire should be in this match to become champion, not Davenport. It would have been so much better. You have Alba Fire beat Mandy Rose for the title. Davenport's upset that she didn't get that opportunity to to win because it was a triple threat. She didn't get a clear one-on-one. And then you go immediately into an Alba Fire Blair Davenport feud. That is how I would have booked the damn territory. I don't exactly know why they're not doing it. The other option, by the way, is instead of putting Fire in here as the third wheel, they could have made it a fatal four-way and put Davenport and Alba Fire in the match, where Fire beats Davenport, maybe, and then Mandy's pissed. She goes off to the main roster. Satamora's angry. She's gone until NXT Europe begins, and hopefully they bring her back. Hopefully they come to some type of agreement where she can stay with that brand. And then you have your Alba Fire, Blair Davenport situation, because maybe Blair took finishers from Rose and Satamora, but Fire was the one to beat her. So many other ways to do it. I would have much rather it wound up, as I said, with Alba Fire and Blair Davenport, as opposed to just Davenport and Mandy being the one to likely win. But it is what it is. I just had to kind of break that down. Uh, Cameron Grimes fought Javier Bernal. There was a quick backstage segment with Bernal being called a prick after giving a security guard a hard time. Schism waited in the crow's nest and said good luck to Grimes before the match. Grimes hit Caven and he won in a relative squash. He stared at Joe Gacy through the finish after the bell. Bernal disrespected a woman backstage after the match when the same security guard from earlier stood up for her by stepping up to him, telling Bernal to hit the showers and calling him a prick for the second time. So Apparently, the security guard is a wrestler that they want to get on TV. They haven't really done that yet, so I am kind of curious to see what happens and if the guy's any good. Legato del Fantasma fought the Dyad. Tony D'Angelo gave Legato grief backstage for trying and failing to stop him last week. He said he wanted to put the past in the past and see success in the ring. Before the match, Grimes stood in the crow's nest, staring down at Schism. Wilde had an outstanding hot tag that jacked up the crowd with the quickness but Dyad came back and hit the same finisher they used as grizzled young veterans to get the win. D'Angelo then screamed at Legato after the bell while Grimes continued staring at Gacy. This was like throwing all of my NXT frustrations into a single match. Legato still being in NXT without Santos Escobar, the existence of Gacy, GYV being massacred as the Dyad, the Dyad beating Legato all together in one segment. The wrestling was obviously good between the four guys, 
but I was really gonna do all the bad sound drops and criticize it. I didn't really wanna talk about it any further until Legato walked into the parking lot, frustrated after the match, when Escobar pulled up in an SUV. He rolled down the window and asked, you didn't think I'd leave without you, did you? They all smiled, jumped into the SUV as fans in the arena chanted Legato with them driving off. So obviously I am over the moon that Legato is together and heading to the main roster. I tore NXT apart for this last week and I'm just ridiculously happy to see the situation rectified. But why make that the stipulation to the match if you were just gonna go back on it immediately? That makes me believe plans changed. If not, the stipulation last week is even more nonsensical than it was in the first place. They could have simply done the, Santos Escobar, you know, the, either the stipulation is that all of Legato has to leave or it's loser leaves town completely with Tony D'Angelo on the other side. He would have to leave if he lost, which is what I wanted. And you have Legato lose and they're all really depressed. And then this week they're packing up their stuff and Santos Escobar gets a phone call. He goes, hey guys, you wanna come with me? And they all jump in the car together and they go off. They could have done the exact same thing with having the stipulation to the match make more sense. But look, at the end of the day, I demanded that WWE give me what I want. Give me what I want. Give me what I want. And they delivered. Things at NXT have been quite chaotic from a creative standpoint over the last few months. So I'm gonna chalk this up to the continued craziness. Something that should not be overlooked is the tremendous storytelling here. Legato Del Fantasma began with Escobar kidnapping these guys in the NXT parking lot, throwing them into his black SUV. And it ends with the same guys willingly getting into Escobar's black SUV to leave with him. That is top level shit right there. The group, I hope they head to SmackDown and they ball out of control. Legato Del Fantasma, the tag team, Cruz Del Toro and Wild. They should immediately be in the tag team mix, like getting time with all of the tag teams or, or whatever tag teams still remain in WWE and just looking super impressive. Santos Escobar should slot right into the mid card, eventually go after Gunther for the Intercontinental Championship. I'm not saying he has to win, but I have said on this podcast so many times, this is a real faction. They work together. They all speak well. It's just every single item that you could want, the swag, the ring, the in-ring presence, the promo ability, they have it all. Santos Escobar, I still believe is someone who could be a future world champion in WWE, but his floor, his basement should be upper mid-carder who can occasionally contend for the titles and be an intercontinental champion and United States champion. So I really hope that they go to SmackDown where it is very light on talent right now. They still need to build up that roster. And I hope that these guys absolutely positively ball out of control. Wendy Chu against Tiffany Stratton in a lights out match was the main event. Stratton had a different look with very long pink and blonde braids. She talked about the entire women's division being about her after she beats Wendy and said that she will go after the unified champion coming out of Worlds Collide. For the match, the lights were actually dimmed, as they promised, with kind of a blue spotlight on the ring. Weapons were used immediately, but the shots were weak at the beginning. 
Stratton ran Chu into a trash can that was propped up in the corner, threw her into the steps outside. And then after commercial break, Chu's bed wound up at ringside. Commentary explained that she dragged it down during commercial break. Stratton missed a moonsault and Chu vertical suplexed her into a pink chair. Chu then used a weapon to aid a crossface until Stratton escaped it by using hairspray she pulled out of her purse. Then she powerbombed Chu into a trash can for a near fall. Chu avoided the twisting Vader bomb and hit Stratton with a body pillow that was filled with Legos. She then dumped the Legos out of the pillowcase and Stratton hit a fallaway slam. Unfortunately, Wendy totally missed the Legos on that, but Stratton body slammed her into them for good measure and then hit a running double stomp, slamming Chu backwards into the Legos a third time, all for a near fall. The only thing that would have made this better is if the referee put on gloves treating the Legos like they were thumbtacks. Because I don't know if you guys know, those of you maybe who have kids probably understand, but if you step on a Lego, let alone fall backwards into a pile of them, they hurt like hell. So I absolutely loved this element. Stratton grabbed powder out of her purse, but Chu kicked it in her face and then immediately hit Stratton with a uranagi through her bed frame, it was a wooden bed frame, to a massive, massive pop. Then she rolled Stratton inside and jumped up to the top rope, hitting nap time for the win. This match was an absolute blast, like pure entertainment. Was it the best wrestling in the world? No, okay, it wasn't, but it was a load of fun and we got the right winner. It was probably both of their best matches in NXT to date. The Lego spot, as I already told you, popped me because those shits hurt like a mother. So credit to Wendy for taking those bumps. The finish was also outstanding in its totality. I went 3.5 stars and a B for the match, but it's an A for an entertainment value of the entire thing. And not only did Wendy Chu look good, but Tiffany Stratton, after less than two dozen career matches, looks like she could be maybe six months away from a main roster call-up. I have not seen someone adapt this naturally since Bianca Belair. It's actually astounding what she can do. Her look with the long braids was also a massive improvement in presentation because it went away from the stereotypical shit that we've been getting. Moving her away from spoiled daddy's girl to like snobby young woman, that's the move. And that may sound similar to you, but there's definitely a distinction there. Even Wendy's presentation, putting her in like a tighter bodysuit that still kind of looked like a onesie instead of the soft cotton overflowing onesie, it allowed us to take her more seriously. I did not think that I would like this match as much as I did, but it was a win for everyone involved from creative to both women in the ring, the, the costume people, the presentation, all of it was an A. Again, the match was a B in terms of an actual grade, but the presentation, the entertainment value, it main eventing the show, all of that, two thumbs up and a huge A from me. Cora Jade backstage cut a promo about how she won fair and square against Roxanne Perez and how the dateless losers tweeting that the finish should have been a disqualification are, well, dateless losers. It was a fine promo, a little heavy handed with the insults. I don't know that she needed to go that far. Um, But as I said, there's a reason why it wasn't a disqualification. She didn't really explain it as well as I did, but she did address it at least. Uh, Wesley told Caden Carter and Katana Chance to watch their backs as champions. They threw some shade saying they were the only real women's tag team champions in WWE and didn't need a tournament to win their titles, which is probably why they weren't invited. I thought it was like a cute little backstage segment, and I kind of liked them throwing shade at the main roster titles. It was completely appropriate. Chase U held a class in the ring 
with Andre Chase introducing Charlie Dempsey to teach catch-as-catch-can wrestling. If only NXT had someone who taught catch-as-catch-can wrestling. Like, I don't know, Timothy Thatcher. Anyway, Dempsey dominated his student, and then Bodie Hayward, he dominated him as well. That made Bodie snap for the first time. Dempsey called the class soft and told the students to watch Billy Robinson as homework. It's a really a good idea. This was a cool way, I thought, to introduce Dempsey to the U.S. audience. He already has good size, good presence. And I think I said this last week, he could be an extremely quick riser through NXT, even quickly making his way up to the main roster. Now, I would be remiss if I did not address how NXT ended, which was with a really quick backstage contract signing. Mandy Rose, Blair Davenport, Maiko Satomura, uh, Braun Breaker, and Tyler Bate were all backstage at a long table with all four of the championship titles on top of the table. They signed the contracts one by one before looking at one another. I just thought it was a really cool spot. Like It showed that the divisions in NXT carry equal weight, and it made all of the matches and competitors feel extremely important. Given that this is such a short turnaround and Worlds Collide's had a lack of build, I thought doing something like this was necessary and appreciated. On top of that, the infusion of NXT UK talent has accomplished something interesting in NXT, let's call it 2.0. When NXT made the shift from black and gold to 2.0, what I said consistently at the start on the show was it needed to be not as much of a drastic change and that the sweet spot was probably somewhere in the middle of black and gold with the developmental aspects and youth of 2.0. Well, most of you probably haven't watched NXT UK regularly, myself included. Like I told you recently, I caught up on all the shows, but I was not a weekly watcher. But NXT UK is, was the last bastion of black and gold NXT left in WWE. With so many of those talents now being mixed among the 2.0 guys and girls, we actually seem to be in the process of reaching that middle ground that I was asking for so many months ago. It's a black and gold flavor being infused with 2.0. And I noticed it very much on Tuesday. I just thought it hit extremely well. And obviously, I hope it continues. One last thing before we get out of here. I know WWE and NXT are both TVPG. I get it. But bleeping the shit part of the holy shit chant, it is the height of absurdity. And it is actively and actually ruining the atmosphere of these shows. USA Network is literally a cable channel. You can say basically any curse word you want on cable if the channel so chooses. They used to air Mr. Robot on this station where they said fuck consistently at the 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. hours. Bleeping shit during a wrestling show in 2022, TVPG or not, is just ridiculous. So there was rumors about that TV14 change in July. It never happened. Supposedly it was going to happen at some point down the road. Maybe they're going to do it when they start the new season, quote unquote, or after the draft. I don't know what it is, but these two shows, Raw and NXT that are on USA Network, they need either to move to TV 14 or USA Network needs to be a little bit more lax in the language they allow on these shows. I'm not suggesting that they be able to curse up and down the entire card. But if you can't let a crowd naturally chant holy shit, even if your wrestlers aren't saying the word shit, 
then you're literally ruining the product. Like you're actively hurting the production and not so much the visual, but the audio product that we are getting. You're actively hurting it by bleeping out every other word in a natural crowd chant. So I don't know, I doubt anyone from USA Network is listening, obviously, but they need to get off their high horse or this TV 14 change needs to happen as soon as possible. Because guess what? Fox with SmackDown in prime time on Friday nights, they're not bleeping holy shit and that's network TV. So if network TV Fox can do it, USA Network on cable, you can do it too. All right, folks. So that was a rant heavy edition of our uh, Getting Over Wrestling podcast covering everything that happened this week across AEW and NXT. As I said earlier on this show, we will have a full schedule next week for WWE Clash at the Castle, NXT Worlds Collide, and AEW All Out. We're going to have ultimate previews, instant analysis episodes. We will give you that entire schedule next Tuesday on our upcoming WWE Clash at the Castle Ultimate Preview. I'll tell you what that entire weekly schedule is going to look like when you can listen to the show, both the taped episodes and the live shows that we will do on Twitter spaces ahead of those major events. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only so you can listen to those live shows on Twitter spaces, but so you can vote in our pre and post show polls for all three events and know when all of our new episodes drop next week. Also, folks, please do not forget the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a written review. Let everyone know how much you love the show and tell them why they should subscribe. But at this point, it is time for the Silver King to go. So I am signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.